What I want. That's what he wants. Listen, you see, that's what I want. Yeah, that's what I want. I want the money. We're talking about the money here on the Music Biz 101 and more yes, Brave New Radio. I'm Professor David Kirk Philp, along with my esteemed cohort, Dr. Esteban. Marconi. That this, is me. That is, that will always be you. Right. And, and we this have is a, a very interesting show tonight. We're going to have an, a killer show. We're going tonight. to explore. The live scene from the agent's point of view, like we've never done before. And it's our second agent, because we had Adam Kornfeld from uh, Several times. Artist Twice. Groups International. Twice, said Twice? he was on. Really? Okay. Mm -hmm. I hope he, he liked it that much. So uh, we're going to have Ken Fermaglich of UTA. He's a partner and an agent, and uh, it's going to be a great show. We have a student co-host with us. Her name is Jaylene Munoz. Jaylene Munoz. Jaylene yes, Munoz. yes, yes, yes. Say hi, Jaylene. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here tonight. What is your major here at William Patterson University? Uh, I'm a double major in global business marketing and a minor in music and entertainment. Very good. She's yeah. a very good student. Yeah. Yeah, I have her in class right now, and she's mm -hmm. uh, somewhat decent. So we appreciate you being here. What do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, I want to really work in, like, touring and mostly, like, music, but internationally-wise. Great. Okay. So we have the right, you're the right person for the right guy, mm -hmm. and that's great. But there's somebody else in the room we should chat about for hours on, on end. Her name is Ashley Veltner, and she's our German engineer, a product of German engineering. Hello, Ashley. How are you today? I'm pretty good. I'll actually talk tonight. This is our second show of the day. Wow. This morning we recorded a show with the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Roger McGuinn of the Birds mm -hmm. that you will hear next week on Brave New Radio. But that's next week. Why don't we focus on the here and the now, huh? What do you say about that, Ashley? Yeah, come on. Okay, let's go. So... Go to our website, musicbiz101wp.com. Sign up for that newsletter. And as we were recording the show this morning, Dr. Esteban, mm -hmm. two emails pop up on my thing of people signing up for our email That's list. That's great. Isn't that amazing? It's growing I like a... I know you had like so a, many relatives. Yeah. Um, my uh, mother signed up twice. Follow us on the Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook, at musicbiz101wp. We're also a podcast. Many of you will be listening to this as a podcast over and over and over and over and over and over again. iTunes, SoundCloud, and the Spotify. Should we give some thanks? We better. Hands together, eyes closed, heads bowed. Let us give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno Inc., and White Hat Management. With artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, and Kiss, there is only one place for you to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. Ah. Hyphen. CPA.com when you're ready. And we want to give thanks to our good friend, Christine. Oi. They, a wealth manager and the president of They Wealth Management. Christine has helped many of our professions at the University of William Patterson manage their investments, plan after their retirement. If you're looking for some guidance on how to plan for your retirement, if you have questions on anything from investments, portfolio management, or insurance retirement planning, give Christine a call at Jaylene Munoz. Would you please repeat after me? 732. 732. 455. 455. 1510. 1510. We can email her, Christine at theywealth.com for advisement. Leave the best oil off for savings. And that's what you should always do, and I hope hopefully you know that by now. You should know that Managing Your Band 6th Edition is out, available mm -hmm. now for you to peruse. If you would like, go to your public library and look at it with lots of other people because it's a public library, not the private kind. Right. We don't like those. William Patterson, the university, University of William Patterson, 
William Patterson University. All three of us have been ranked one of the best, this music business program, in Very the nation. Best. Yes. In Los Estados Unidos. Correct. In, how do you say nation in, like, France? French. <laughs> oh, French, I'm terrible. French. I, uh, uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, breaches. Okay. This is our fifth year of the show. This is episode 200 and something. And we only know because they're all up on SoundCloud, and it told, told us how many we've done. We've done a lot of these. And we're very excited because we think this may be one of the best ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our guest is Ken Fermaglich, partner and agent at leading global talent and entertainment company, United Talent Agency, UTA. Ken, you on the line there. I sure am. I'm here. How you doing? Great. Great. Um, we want you to feel the pressure of us pumping you up. And saying this I will this will probably be one of the best ever. So, you, you got it. We need 110 percent from you tonight. Uh-huh. Okay, you got it. You'll all get it. That's all right. That's Great. good. All right. Very good. Great. So, uh, doctors, um, I'm Dave, as you know. Doctor Esteban Marconi is yes, here with us. Yes, that is me. We also have a student co-host, Jaylene Munoz, with us. Jaylene, say hello to Ken, my good friend. Hi. Hi. Nice to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and we are going to begin. Doctor Esteban is going okay. to give you the third degree. Ken, Ooh. you gave a very nice uh, interview in. Polestar about a year ago, and it okay. uh, sort of comparing the business between uh, from 2000 to present at that time, mm-hmm. 19, uh, 2018. Uh, sure. I'd like you to sort of elaborate on how the structure of the agencies, booking oh. agencies, have changed in that 20 years. Sure. Um, I think that a lot of it has changed based on the need for full service and really. That's a big part of what the agency business is now um, on the music side in that uh, whereas in 2000 or years ago, you could be uh, you could work at and you could be represented by a one dimensional booking agency and do some really great things and build a touring career and have, uh, you know, the ability to evolve as a band. I think now, excuse me, I think now. the need for more opportunities for bands that don't just mean touring opportunities is so important in a a band's developmental uh, tract and and career that you you have to have have positioning with a full-service talent agency. And by that, I mean a talent agency that has other divisions besides just music that potentially can source other opportunities. That's a big change in the business and a really uh, significant thing that's happened uh, in the sense that the, the need is really strong for that from, from a band's perspective. And I think also from the agent's perspective, as far as the uh, colleagues and coworkers that they have, really being skilled and knowledgeable and opportunities and things that can be presented to bands. And that's really where uh, a big part of the change has happened, I mm-hmm. think, for bands and, you know, in, in the way that the business has evolved. And it certainly evolved that way for me in my own career. And I saw the need for it. Uh, and i Seen it from from my clients as well. Think it's any reflection of the 360 deal? No, I don't think it has to do with the 360 deal from the mm-hmm. labels, which is what I assume you're referring to. Yes. It, it more has to do with the change overall in the the desire for bands to uh, find other mediums to push their music out besides just music platforms mm-hmm. themselves. It could be through commercials or movies or different kinds of things. It also comes from the desire for artists. Uh, who have other interests besides just being musicians, per se, in many cases, and they have, would like to act or would like to direct or have social interests as far as charitable contribute, you know, different things that, that people want to do now. I think it's just the, the entertainment industry in general has evolved in that regard, and I think now because of that evolution, you're seeing the need in the talent agency side. Mm-hmm. I don't really think it has to do with the label's 360 desires, though, no. All right. Um the agencies of the late 1900s were structurally, most of them were based on territories and yeah. agents being assigned the territory and some having colleges of the Northeast, other having content yep. promoters of the Northeast, so on and so forth. Yep. Has that changed? Yep. Well, you know, it's a good question. It, it hasn't, you know, for the bigger <laughs> agencies, and when I say bigger, William RCA, ICM, UTA, we, we have that and we have a territorial system that breaks different uh regions of the country and different capacities of venues and types of bookings, PACs, colleges, casinos, those kinds of things. It, 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 it hasn't changed much 
although I will say that there are certain uh, exceptions to the rule, per se, in the sense that there are certain bands that certain agents would rather book themselves, even at a bigger company, because they want to have full oversight on what's happening with the band. Mm -hmm. And therefore, despite the fact that you have the territorial system in certain companies, a certain agent agents may desire to, to really be quarterbacking every single booking. So it's changed in the sense that you can kind of have some sort of, uh, you, you know, there's three scenarios I think right now. You have the, the siloed scenario, which was my old scenario at the agency group where we were previous to UTA. Um, you certainly have the territorial system, which is like you're talking about. And then there's also a pod system, I think, that's kind of a hybrid of both somewhere sitting in the middle where you have groups of people who work on projects uh, within a music talent booking agency division. Um, and so that's kind of a little bit of a, of a hybrid scenario, and that mm -hmm. exists, too, at different places. But it's, it's evolved a little bit, but, mm -hmm. but still similar to what it was years ago. It's, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons for it, and there's a lot of different angles to, to talk about with why those systems are there and why they work in some places. And by the way, in some cases, it doesn't work, mm -hmm. and it's not right for every single band. And it's, you know, some of it involves the, what the band or the manager wants and how they want to be serviced. Mm -hmm. Because at the root of it, of course, don't forget that what an agency does is a service-oriented business. <clears throat> Booking a band and their tours and whatnot on the music side, that's all service-oriented. And sometimes if the service isn't right in that scenario or that capacity vis-a-vis -vis territorial, it needs to be more specialized. That can happen, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's uh, turn a little bit to uh, what Bob Silliman and SFX did to the promoter side mm -hmm. uh, since 2000 and how has that changed for the agent? Well, I don't know if, you know, it's changed a bit from what he did. Obviously he rolled a lot of them together and created, you know, a conglomerate of companies under one shingle um, or multiple different shingles, but that was kind of the model that he created with the roll-ups and things that he did. Um, I think the interesting thing about that is how that has actually progressed past that, because I think the first incarnation of that roll-up was just them, these companies all coming together under one roof and sharing information. Now it's come under one roof, share information, and figure out strategies to really, you know, do amazing things and and really help promote a band and strengthen strengthen the ability of the promoter to be a very important cog in the wheel, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, the, you know, there's been an evolution here because it isn't just what Sillerman did with the roll-up however many years ago in purchasing all these companies and really putting them all under one, you know, at, at that point SFX and then it obviously became Live Nation. But it, it's not just that. It's what they've done since then uh, with their, their abilities to really work together and really become a national touring entity and that goes for AG too. Sillerman wasn't there obviously, but clearly they've purchased a whole bunch of different companies in different places around independent promoters in different places around the US uh, and, and Canada too for that matter and and now have a national touring footprint. And that's really where the evolution has gone is the national touring footprint and the ability for bands to be booked at a national level as opposed to just a localized level. Mm -hmm. So it kind of took what he did and evolved it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, on that same subject, what would be the uh, the agent's role in, let's say, a big tour, the Rolling Stones tour? Do they really need? Well, there's an... no agent. There, there is no agent. On that's the what I was just going to say. Do they really need an agent? Well, you know, that's an interesting conversation because clearly <laughs> there are some artists, Rolling Stones, U2, Madonna, uh, who go around without an agent and. I, for one, don't understand it because I feel like there's always a role for an agent with a tour, you know, notwithstanding the financial component of what an agent has to be paid. I feel like there's always a, a role for that, that part of the ecosystem uh, in the overall plan. So I can't speak to the Stones. I, I don't work with them or right. some of those other artists I just mentioned, but I believe that there's always a role for an agent in any national touring structure, always a role. No matter how fast the tickets sell, no matter how quickly uh, a show does what it's going to do, there's always a role for an agent, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But even in, in U2 and Madonna, for example, and here's where I mm -hmm. think you can speak, uh, 
they're managed by Artist Nation, which is part of Live Nation. And Arthur Fogel from Live Nation is the one, you know, promoting those tours. Uh, they, they would still, I mean, there's, there seems to be a conflict of interest to a degree in that the agents, uh, the management companies owned by the promoter at the same time. Uh, I guess they're all looking to do the same thing and just make a lot of money. But um, even there, where do you think the, an agent would, what, it, what could an agent do in that case? Well, I, I still believe that there's a role for an agent at, either on the side of marketing, helping have a third-party opinion on ticket pricing, scaling, um, again, seeking other option, other opportunities and options and things to be brought into the, the fold from a sponsorship or brand partnership perspective. I, I, I think there are other touch points that aren't just as simple as routing the tour, per se, that an agent brings into the party and, and a third party opinion, if you will, that's not the manager's opinion and not the promoter's opinion uh, that can help to shape it. And so I, I, I still see the role there. Clearly, those artists don't. <laughs> Taylor Swift is another one. And you brought up Live Nation and Artist Nation, but Taylor Swift is another one who doesn't have an agent in that regard at this point. And she's not Artist Nation from a management perspective, but made the decision at some point years ago that she didn't need it. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it confounds me because I don't understand how you know, that it works that way, but clearly it does work. But I wonder if other things and other opportunities just aren't being brought to the party or to the table when you, when you have that missing link, or, you know, and that missing piece isn't there, the agent. Yeah, you, you make a very good point because uh, Bruce is going to go out and in within four minutes the tour is sold out, quote unquote. Yet, yeah, uh, there's I'm all these. Sure that's the case, though. I'm not so sure that the, the tour is really that sold out. Per right. Se. And I know what you're saying. I know what you mean by that. In some markets, clearly, there are instant sellouts and certain things can happen, and, and it's, it's a flick of a switch and tickets are sold. But it's not necessarily every market. Mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily everywhere in the world or in North America where it's the same scenario for every artist. It, does, it doesn't really work like that anymore, and especially with you know secondary ticketing and other, other means. It's not quite that simple. Mm -hmm. um, Clearly, there are, there are reasons that, that bands do it and that artists do it and take an agent out of the equation. Um, you know, I just don't believe in it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then again, I'm an agent, so I <laughs> We realize that, yes. <laughs> yeah, and none of this, by the way, is meant to uh, disparage you oh, and your role all. in any way. It's, yeah, just, um, it's interesting it the conversation like just went that way. Yeah. Um, well, on the other side, you uh, ran or you were the agent for Guns N' Roses on one of the recent most I'm saying this, I'm butchering my words, but on one of the most recent biggest tours uh, in the world, you were the agent for Guns N' Roses. And so while we're talking about the Stones or U2 or Madonna, Guns N' Roses did have an agent. So uh, what did you do for that that you feel well, first, you, you had to be there? All, let, let's, first of all, let's just talk in the present tense because I am still the agent, not past tense. What, <laughs> number one. Let's just make sure we're careful in our tenses. There. Okay, um, very but, good. But, yes, but, I want you packing. But, but but saying that, um, yes, it is the second most uh, biggest grossing tour of all time now, as, as far as tours, only second to you two. And mm -hmm. obviously, we're all in the camp, very proud about that, and very happy to have seen that the demand that we thought that was there when the band decided that they wanted to reunite, as three of the original members did, um, has come to fruition. Um, and what I've seen from it in a top-line general perspective is clearly from a worldwide perspective. We've played in front of over 5 million people. We've played, I think, somewhere between 60 and 70 different countries now since they reunited in 2016. Uh, and I believe it's 150-plus shows is the, the statistical number or thereabout so far to date. And there's more coming, obviously, because we announced a few things now in the last couple of weeks for this year. And Clearly, you know, there's a, an amazing demand for this band and an amazing demand to see these band members play together again, which was really uh, the most important part of this, which is that, that the, the consumer wants to see these band members, Axel Slash and Duff, play shows together and, and do what they did years and years ago again. And, you know, some, some, some would say that absence you know, of them together made the heart grow fonder, and that's what's, you know, part of what's propelled this Um but I would say, in an, in an overarching perspective, and there's a lot of dynamics to this, but one of the most important things that I think happened here is that we, we've attempted really, uh, through this whole process, to 
to make sure that this band is not just a legacy thing. We, we, we've been very, very um, focused, hyper-focused, in fact, on, on making this band a contemporary band for today and not just something that's living on, on fumes from, you know, the 90s. And we've done it in a couple of interesting different ways that we can kind of dissect a little bit if you'd like. But yeah. we, we've really felt, we've felt really it's important for this band to be felt as a contemporary band that is as relevant today as it was back in the 90s when it burst onto the scene and played, you know, arenas and stadiums and toured the world then. Furthermore, with this band, again, noting that there is a worldwide footprint for this band. They went around the world back in the day, and we've gone around the world here, as I said, 60-some-odd countries that they've played now. Really important part of all that is touching all four, you know, all points of the globe with this band and trying to get them in front of with this band that they have now as many people as possible. And most importantly, uh, I would say, as far as this reunion, you know, the band is still incredible live. And, and I think it always, you know, you have to have the catalog to propel something like this. Obviously they do. But you also have to be that good live and be able to pull it off live because that's the name of the business, right? That's what this is. We're talking about touring, and the band is that good, that dangerous, that strong of a live show now as it was then. And I think that's that's a really important part of all of it. Mm -hmm. Was it a hard sell to some in the beginning when they went out again with you know, Axel's you know, behavior? A really, it's a really, yeah, sure, that's a really good question. Um, I think, sure, you know, the ghosts of, of Guns N' Roses past, if you will, certainly have was something at the beginning in 2016 that we had to uh, think about. And, and really in 2015, the end of 2015, we had to really start thinking about it. Yeah, that was part of something that was in people's minds and was something that people had to think about. And I can, you know, there are certainly certain promoters out there who'd lived some experiences years and years ago that were really uh, unfortunate and, and not good. And to allay their concerns and let them understand that this is, something that's going to be very different, um, you know, took some, some time and took some energy as far as really making sure people understood this wasn't going to be that and we could understand what a curfew means and we could understand what an on-stage time means mm -hmm. as far as what, what needs to happen when. But, look, these guys are professionals. These guys are a bit older now and, and have a different way of looking at things. And people need to understand that there's growth and maturation in people. And so... Yeah, it took a bit of time, and it took a bit of, you know, trust, and it took a leap of faith in some people's uh, eyes. And certainly the first person who had to take that leap of faith was Paul Tillette when, when I booked him on Coachella, and, and we, we did that. Um, and then, of course, our partners at, at, at Live Nation and, and with Steve Herman specifically, um, yeah, did they have to really believe in what we felt was, was going to be a very different scenario? Yeah, mm -hmm. they did. And, you know, here we are, and we, we've had a really good track record of doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing when we're supposed to be doing it and making sure that it's as good as it's supposed to be, which mm -hmm. is also the important part. It's not just that we're doing it on time, but it's that it's that good. The, the band is that good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How long have you been the manager for Guns N' Roses? I'm sorry, well, agent. I agent. haven't been, yeah. <laughs> For I believe I believe I, I believe I got hired by the manager Fernando Labase uh, in either latter part of 2011 or 2012, somewhere in there, and that was before the reunion when Axel was touring because Axel has toured under Guns N' Roses and has been Guns N' Roses for all these years. When other band members had left, he was still doing it. So I represented it. I believe started it around the backside of 2011. I want to say and then up till contemporary now. From the time that you were hired to the time that you started pitching yourself to be the person to do this, how long How long was the courtship? Um, you mean before, you know, at the beginning in 2011? Yeah, before, yeah, even before 2011. Yeah, like, it, when... it, it, it didn't take long, actually. Interestingly enough, they, they were with a previous agency, uh, and there were some issues there and some just some disconnects with what the band needed and what management needed uh, at the time. And um, when I sat down with Fernando Lobes, the manager, the first time here in New York City, um, we, we sat down and we talked about what his needs were. And I said to him, you know, I took a lot of what he was telling me about their touring at that time and what the strengths were and what the weaknesses were. And I kind of processed it and thought about it and tried to kind of think, okay, what, how are these 
there, there's mistakes being made here, whether it's bookings or whether it's timings, because timings was important at the time of when the show would happen and how long people were standing there waiting for a show, et cetera. I took it all under, you know, advisement and thought about it and, and kind of gave them some, some ideas of what I thought they could do that would be different than what they were doing currently at that point in time. And interestingly, they liked some of the ideas. And so that's kind of how it got rolling is I suggested some different kinds of thinking. You know, maybe instead of playing arenas, for example, and going out with 10 trucks, let's play some big ballrooms and clubs with really high ticket prices and reduce the footprint of your show, but still make the similar kind of money. But now you're netting more money. You know, and we, we tried some different things like that and had some really great success in a lot of the, the, um, the larger ballrooms and clubs around the country in that regard prior to um, any of this reunion stuff. And in fact, at that time, just to be clear, there was never any talk of reunion. It was never about the reunion. It was about the fact that this was the band that Axel was touring with. Mm-hmm. He was still touring off of the Chinese democracy record. And we were, the people on the team were all focused on making sure that he had a great touring career. That was the important thing. Uh, and, and still to this day is important. But but at that point, I just came in and tried to think of it in a bit of a different way than they had been thinking of it previously. Mm-hmm. That's a good point, that it wasn't going to be a reunion tour, but they were a vital well, in today's well, band. No, no, no. Initially, that wasn't, you know, when I came in, it was very clear, don't don't bring up reunion. We're not talking about yeah, reunion. This is yeah. the band he's got. And, and let's focus on good ways to tour this band. Listen, it didn't matter at that point because that was as close as you could get to Guns N' Roses in the sense that you had Axel and you had that catalog, and we could still use a lot of the different elements of what Guns N' Roses was previously. So, you know, it, 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 it was a really great time, and we did some great things in Las Vegas with residencies, and, and, and clearly residencies are now all the rage, ironically. Mm-hmm. And we were, you know, I won't say we were one of the first bands, but we were certainly one of the bands early on who identified the residency for an act as being a really great thing to do when you can have a band sit down in Las Vegas in a venue over four weeks or thereabouts and play multiple shows. You don't have tour buses. You don't have trucks out there. Mm-hmm. You can minimize a lot of your cost and maximize your profit that way. And that's why that model really works. And that's why you're seeing Las Vegas just explode right now from a residency perspective because now more and more artists, including contemporary artists, are starting to understand that, you know, it's not such a bad thing to sit down in Vegas and play multiple shows over multiple weeks, multiple months, in fact, and and be able to really, you know, defray your costs that way and maximize your profit and your profitability. Yeah, I think the millennials have taken to it, um, to that idea of then having the great room, having the gambling having Vegas in general, and having your favorite yeah. band as well. Yes, yeah, it's all it's all of the above, you know, right. full package kind of a thing. Yes, it was interesting to me because I was on Epic Records in the early 70s, and of course, Vegas was a four-letter word. Uh, we would yeah. never sell out and play. But now, my age group are going to the shows of those bands, some of which were around at that time. You know, that's, again, it's, it's a little bit about the evolution of the way the business has changed again. So two things. Number one, clearly Vegas is no longer a four-letter word or a bad word, and it's clearly something that's very relevant because it's such a destination. But also, you know, even, even things like the way the business has changed with regards to brand partnerships and sponsorships, and you yes. asked me about Silliman, Silliman earlier and the roll-ups and whatnot and how things have changed. Well, you know, back back in the late 90s, early 2000s, bands didn't want to play under an AT&T banner, you know, mm-hmm. at, a, at, a, at a stage. Now bands are more than happy. Bands will take a brand partnership out on the road to help underwrite a tour. Yeah. So things, you know, it's the way things evolve right. in the culture overall and into the music business itself. Yeah. And it's the, the one of the uh, statements we always say in class, of course, because we have so many budding musicians with new bands and new music and so on. And, of course, they're looking for brand partnerships. And, of course, when you need one, you can't get one. But when you don't need one, they're they're at your doorstep. Well, sometimes, certainly. And, you know, again, back to the original question you had asked me about, you know, the evolution of the agency side of things, it's exactly why, you know, from our perspective within United Talent Agency, we have music brand partnership people embedded in our division. Mm-hmm. And they're people who we work with on a daily basis looking for music brand partnerships for our clients. 
And it's for that exact reason, big band, little band, middle band, there's need for that. And there's need for brands to help to bolster artists profile, bolster music profile, push things out to get it through, you know, the noise of all of the different music that's out there. Mm -hmm. Those things are crucial. So we recognize that we have, I think at this point we have four people now in our music division who function in that, in that sub department, if you will, within the music division, providing that service of music brand partnerships for us and supporting us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I was going to, sure. Just piggyback on that. So uh, we're we're pretty much friendly with Warner Artist Services, and of course, they, it doesn't have to be a Warner Act for Warner Artist Services to um, to service them. Uh, but do you have? Um, um, are they sort of like a sounding board? Those types of uh, record company, um, I guess, branch outs from when the three hundred and sixty deals became the norm. Well, it's yeah, it's not a branch out as much as is, is it's a recognition by the labels, just like it is by the agencies, that they need the music brand partnerships in-house and that they can use them to develop an artist early on or they can use them to uh, find, you know, do something with an artist later in their career. And so, in essence, you know, the question really becomes, can the agency side of music brand partnerships coexist with the label side of music partnerships? That's really a better question to kind of really mm -hmm. uh, drill into because th that's, you know, the, both, both entities are working to try and find those partnerships. And the hope is that they're working in concert together in a way to go find those things and, and can understand how, you know, both sides need to help each other. Um, but yeah, the labels are in, in most of the major label perspectives, they have the same brand partnership people, uh, well, not, not the same, but, but people who do right. it there too in fact one of the, the person who runs our music brand partnership uh division within our music division she came from a, a record label and we were very specific that we wanted this woman to come work with us because we felt she was so strong in in her job at, at, at the label and could really help us understand it from the label side but now turn her into a someone who could support us on the agency side yeah, we actually were in Nashville at a convention called Music Biz last year, and we interviewed uh, Marieke Bianche, I believe is how her name is pronounced. But she hmm. was uh, doing brand partnerships for Warner Music Nashville, and she has since uh, gone to CAA, and she's doing it there. <laughs> yeah, so right. There we, you go. Yeah, we won't yeah. talk about that company, by the way. <laughs> you can talk about them. That's fine. I don't want you to think we're cheating on you, Ken. <laughs> All um, good. So uh, I want to give a plug to uh, Dan Steinberg, uh, Luke Pierce, and Promoter 101, which is another podcast that everybody listening to this show should listen to. Uh, Jaylene, you've listened to some Promoter 101 podcasts in class, have you not? Yes, I have. Excellent work. And um, <laughs> we reached out to Dan to because uh, he, he's known you for a very long time, and he said a couple nice things about you. He said, um, you're one of the most detailed agents in the biz. No one is getting anything by him. He is so on point also has an eye for seeing things no one else does. So ask him, we just talked about Guns N' Roses. So um, ask him how he knew Creed would sell, because you saw something there there that no one else did. Uh, <laughs> and you, he said you were right yeah. in a big way. So uh, what do you have to say about that? Well, you know, it's a, first of all, Dan's a great guy. It's funny, he brings something up from 1997, <laughs> uh, which is ironic in all of this, but okay, 1997, uh, yes. I went down uh, to Mercury Lounge here in New York City, and uh, an attorney at the time named Nick Ferrara told me about a band uh, called Creed and told me I should go see them because I would be blown away by them. And I went down there, and I was, as he said, I would be blown away by them. Now, the interesting thing about it is uh, I, I really liked the music at the time, and this is all from 20-plus years ago, but... They were on a little independent record label called Wind Up Records, which yep. also was here in New York. Uh, and, you know, you didn't really know a lot about Wind Up because it was a small independent label. But as I listened to the music and got familiar with the music, I thought, hmm, this is very catchy. And this band was unbelievable live. And this front man, Scott Stapp at the time, uh, was just, you know, dynamic. So I, I think what I saw was something that really moved me, touched me. You know, I, I definitely will say that I was really impressed with everything about the band, their management, the whole package. It was a band coming out of 
Tallahassee, Florida at the time that had airplay on a radio station down there and had some other airplay potentially, I think, down in Florida. So there was a regional thing happening. Those were all good signs. And the most important advice I got, and this I will never forget because although he's no longer somebody I work with or I'm not sure if he's even in this music business anymore, but Alex Cochin at the time because I was at a company called Artists and Audience Entertainment as an agent there, I brought him the music and I said, this is what's happened. This is what I'm thinking. This is why I'm going to sign it. What do you think? Or this is why I'd like to sign it. What do you think? And he said, well, you know, what's the knock? And, and I said, well, the only thing that I've heard is a knock is that people say it sounds a lot like Pearl Jam at the time. And Alex said to me, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, well, there's a lot of meat on that Pearl Jam bone. <laughs> and I thought to myself, wow, great point. And as I've thought about things through the years, that comment has come to me over and over again because it's such a smart comment. Because just because... It sounds like something else doesn't mean it's not relevant, doesn't mean it's not something that people should be interested in or that, that, that will be interesting to people. And furthermore, and most importantly, just because the critics say it's bad doesn't mean it's bad at all. And I, and I really, the comment to me has stuck with me, and I, I won't forget it because he, he really made me feel like, okay, this is something good to go after, and I'm right in thinking it's good. And, you know, the rest is history in that sense. And, yeah, that band did some amazing things between 1997 and 2002 and bled into 2003 a little bit as well uh, and, and really helped pave the way for me as, a, as an agent and as somebody in the music business and taught me a lot about highs and lows and good things and bad things and, and was a really important uh, band in my career, really important band in my career, and has had lasting relationships through and through uh, on many different levels with band members, with other people associated with the band, and it's an important part of my evolution uh, in the business. Does that help you sign other bands? If you if you have a big band like Creed, do more artists uh, are and, and their managers, are they more attracted to you because they see that you're... You know, you're doing it, you're making it happen for those guys. He can do it for us, too. Sure. At, at, at the time, it absolutely helped me, and it helped me sign Three Doors Down uh, shortly thereafter in 2000 or late 1999, uh, which is a long-standing client of mine. And certainly, yes, having bands and that are successful and seeing that people know what they're doing and are intelligent about the way that they go approach the job can help to find more, more work. That, that's no question about it. No question about it. You know, clearly... Different bands can do different things for you, and there's, you know, now there's different connotations about different bands and what they mean and what they, you know, how is that band cool? Does that mean that they could sign this band? There, there's always those games, but I believe that good work begets good work, and and smart thinking and intelligent uh, thinking in our in our music business will find us more clients, and and luckily I think that's how my career, knock on wood, has evolved. And, and I, I believe, you know, that's what I preach to people when I'm asked it about, you know, people who want to come into the business now. You know, you, you got to be really good at the craft. You got to be smart about how you do the job. You got to understand the job. You got to understand a lot of different aspects of the job. And it isn't just the job itself. A lot of other aspects of it that are going on, going around us. So, yeah, having a successful client can help you find another client. Absolutely. And more. Our friend, you brought up Three Doors Down because our friend Aaron Van Dyne, who's uh, on our adjunct faculty here, is their business manager. And you and I spoke the other day, and you and Aaron go back to around 1999. And um, he has a question for you, but uh, we also have a question via tweet that's pretty much the same question. So Jaylene's going to ask this of you. Do you have any advice for artists beginning their careers who want to book a small tour for themselves? This would be a DIY without the aid of a label. And would it be without the aid of an agent also, so the band yeah. themselves booking it? Yeah, he's yeah. booking it himself. Um, and by the way, this is really... this is from a jazz student, somebody who's very uh, very good at jazz, and he's a graduate student. Mm -hmm. um, and we haven't we've been talking about rock, which is I don't want to put words in your mouth and say it's your specialty, but um, if you can speak to jazz as well, I can't speak to anything about jazz. I'm I'm completely a fish out of water with that, and okay. I wouldn't be able to really give direction. There, in a more general sense, you know, it's a very tricky thing to be able to do what you're talking about, booking shows, especially for a developing band or a young band early on in their career. Clearly, I've always expected or thought that a band that develops a bit of a following in a region 
and specializes and specifically stays in a region, maybe 250, 350 miles, no more than that between bookings. That's a smart way to kind of approach the development of, of a career, I think. I'm not convinced that going and trying to book some national tour early, early on is a smart thing. You know, with, with the advent of streaming and the way that music can now be distributed differently than it used to be able to, you can expand that to a certain extent if streams are developing and if there's a story that's built on social media. But I, I say the, the couple pieces of advice are always be very careful about your booking. Try and put everything, everything about a deal in writing between, you know, the band and the club or the venue that the, the band is going to play so that everything is memorialized so that you always have something in writing that you can point to as far as what the agreement is for what the band is going to be paid. You know, none of this should be verbal. It should always have something memorializing it. Ideally, an email at this point, you know, would be the smartest way to do it. Maybe a text, but something has to memorialize it in writing. And that would be the most important piece of advice that I would give uh, is, and it's no different than, you know, advice I'd tell anybody at an agency now, put it in writing. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. Um, artist development uh, is a term that's thrown out a lot. And uh, agents say they are really great at developing artists. Promoters say the same. Managers say the same. Obviously, all three parties are doing it. Um, how are you working with agents, I'm sorry, with uh, managers and promoters to properly develop an artist through their career from the uh, I know you may not be dealing with them at the, you know, small club 300 cap level, but I actually am. Uh, I actually am. Excellent. Okay. Can you I, I, get through that? I, I can give you a little bit of a case study on something right now. So I recently signed a band uh, called Dirty Honey, um, and I was turned on to the band by a manager at Red Light Management who I work with and love, fell in love with this band, a rock band. Uh, and as far as, you know, the way we try and develop it, um, with this band, this band is a band that wrote a lot of rock riff kind of oriented music, very mainstream, and he just basically pushed the music out. And he did a, the manager did a deal in this case, uh, not a record deal, but a basically a deal with streaming service with Spotify to push the music out um, in some fashion. And so there's a whole lot of playlists happening. And now he's expanded into Amazon and Apple and other streaming services, of course. Um, but yeah, we put them on the road. We found them a tour with a, with another band that they could support, um, and now we're moving on to attempt to find them um, more support slots and tying in radio shows with different uh, radio stations that are playing it. And you know, it, it's it's a process that, that kind of takes some time. And, and 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 again, you have to really be patient, and you have to allow some things to evolve around the band, meaning the story itself to evolve. You have to make sure that there's some publicity components to it. There's radio components to it if it's a radio-driven band. Uh, and, of course, the band, again, back to what I was saying about it being a really good band when it comes to Guns N' Roses, even a baby band or a developing act has to develop a really good live show and has to really get good at playing the songs that they've written and that they've recorded. And that's an important part because if a consumer, fan comes in there, sees a band, thinks that the band isn't very good, you're done. You're toast. Mm -hmm. So the, the development part of it means everybody working together to develop, including the band, including the band ensuring that they're becoming a really great band live. Mm -hmm. So what are some indicators that make you uh, decide to drop a band? Sign a band, you mean, or drop a band? Drop a band. Dropping a band is very difficult. And it's for me, it's, it's a very important, uh, difficult part of the job because, you know, I get very close to a lot of the band members and that's just part of how I work because I don't sign a lot of bands and I don't like to bring a lot of bands into uh, my fold directly. Dropping a band is, is tough. Um, unfortunately, it has to happen because of just time and uh, return on investment, ROI, if you will. Um, the indicators are you know, if a band has become stagnant, if they're not developing, if they're not evolving, selling, you know, the same amount of tickets, if they've kind of dropped off, if the musical genre that they're kind of within has kind of faded to a certain extent, or maybe if the band really isn't in touch with reality. And sometimes that's a hard thing to have to say to a band, but, you know, on occasion you have to say no, 
you're really not a band that can get that festival anymore. You're a little out 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 sourced from that. You're not right for that festival. That's not you're not the kind of band they're looking for. So when you start to have to have those kinds of conversations with a band, the light goes off, you know, and, and it's it's uncomfortable. It's not mm-hmm. a very fun thing to have to drop a band. It's not a very uh, exciting thing in my job to get to a place where I'm not going to work with a band anymore. And by the way, I would say the same thing for being fired on a band, because that happens too, when the band thinks that the agent hasn't done sure. something right, or or that the, the agency hasn't done something right, which I see around me sometimes in years past, and it can happen. And, and clearly there's, there's, you know, we're in the people business, right? That's the thing about what we do in the music business. It's the people business. And so clearly sometimes there's a moment when a band makes a decision because they think something would be better if it was like this, that, or the other thing, the grass mm-hmm. is greener kind of scenario. And yeah, it, it, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's not fun. It's, it's frankly the worst to me. It's just one of the worst things in our job is either in my job is either being fired or dropping, having to drop a band for whatever the reason mitigating circumstances are. It's not, not fun. A lot of reasons can go into it. It's not an enjoyable thing that, that happens though. How do you get over it when you've been fired? Are you, are you able to quickly get Are you like a relief pitcher who blows a save and you just have to wake up the next day, put your shoes on and go back to work? Or is it, you mentioned that, how personal that's, it can be. That, that's, that's exactly it. I take it very personally in the job. So, you know, you have to go to sleep, you have to wake up and you have to try and focus on something else and try and get into a place where you're now no longer thinking about that and that disappointment uh, and you're thinking about, what you can do for the clients you do represent and the ones who are with you and want to be with you. And listen, it's not, it's also difficult when you work with people and your colleagues go through this very, very harsh thing and, and not fun and to have to sit there and console them and hmm. make them feel okay about the fact that it can happen. It's, it's not a very enjoyable part of the job. And, and, you know, I, I've done it now for years and lived it and seen a lot of really good, great, great, great agents, not good, lose an act over different reasons or drop an act to your point over different reasons. It sucks. It's not fun. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the worst things in our business. So, um, you're a partner as well as an agent. Can you kind of describe what, what a partner means to the people listening? Well, well, you know, it's different from every company, right? And so at United Talent Agency earlier this year, they, um, granted me a partnership and I think there's like 50, 55, 60 partners or thereabouts at UTA, um, of which two of us, David Zedek and myself, are music agents. So there's only a couple of us that are in the music division. And that's more a function of just the fact that the music division is only three and a half, almost four years old. Nothing other than that. Um, Really all it means from my perspective is a greater uh, awareness of the goings-on at the agency um, as far as decisions and things that the agency is contemplating before everyone else finds out. Certainly there's a, a more of an important mentorship and leadership role that's asked upon for partners. And, you know, that's an, a really key piece to the puzzle is being able to be, number one, a cultural ambassador within the company of the company to new colleagues, new people coming in, people who are there, as well as um, managers and other people outside of our company. And then awareness, again, of, of what's happening with the company, a greater awareness of, of what's happening with the company. Um, that's kind of what I've seen so far. But bear in mind, I've only been a partner since uh, January, so it's only a few months at this point within the company. And I'm sure I'll learn more as that as this process evolves with me and, and the other partners. It also allows me to have even more of a relationship with other partners within the company who are, you know, as I just mentioned, were, there's only two music partners so a lot of other partners in other divisions which opens me up to have lots of other great relationships with other colleagues other partners in other divisions of the company okay great mm-hmm. um can we get into contracts for a second um, because we mentioned you dropping uh artists artists firing the agent are, are artists signing a contract with the agency stating, uh, and if they are, is that for a term? And Exclusivity. Is the, yeah, and are they, I, guess, I would assume it's an exclusive contract with you for whatever the term is, and the term may be a tour, it might be years. Can you kind of talk about that? I can't really talk about it very much. Um, I don't really have 
contracts with any of my bands, actually. Mm -hmm. In fact, every single band that I represent, I guess you could say, is on a handshake, right? Um, so I can't speak to it. I know that it's a practice that's out there at some agencies, and including our our agency. I think we may have one contract, I should say, on one act we represent that I'm involved with. But it's you know it's it's a lesser done thing in the talent agency side of things more so than managers obviously of contracts and record labels of contracts way more so than we do on the agency side so I, I can't speak to it very much actually I can just say I think you know it's done here and there I think agencies like it because it gives some downside protection of course uh, I, don't, I don't know much about it because I don't really have it with many of my acts at all other than I think one so actually you had really a leap of faith with um, Axel with Guns N' Roses to leap, do all this without a frankly, contract. I've a, frankly, I've had a leap of faith with pretty much every one of them <laughs> that represented 1997. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. And you answered the question very well by stating, in at least from the UTA perspective, and I guess this goes back to TAG as well, an artist and audience, uh, it's, you mentioned the industry. It's not a contract industry between artists and uh, agents. You know, I, I, wish, I wish it was, just like I wish we had a percentage of merchandising that a band makes, but, but unfortunately the industry has changed dramatically and those areas are kind of a little more loose per se. We don't have a piece of merchandise, uh, obviously. And for reasons I can't explain because we relinquished agents relinquished that many years ago before I became an agent. Um, and you know, as far as contracts, it's just, it's not something that's readily done over and over. Should it be? Yeah, maybe it should be. And maybe it should be something that we, we do more of because it would protect us from from being fired or protect us from ensuring that our commissions are you know protected in certain circumstances but it's, it's unfortunately not completely an industry practice at this point because and i think like across the board and, and this answers a question i was thinking a while back and and you don't have to speak on this because i believe she was with your agency but celine dion uh was sued by her agency, and we don't have to talk about any names or anything, um, because uh, the agency stated they did not receive the commissions they were supposed to get. And I was thinking, how could yeah. that be? Because uh, if there's a contract, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, I think you kind of just answered that whole situation, too. A lot of gray area, and I, yeah. I can't speak to that that scenario at all, but there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a lot of gray area because there isn't a contract. Sure. Right, okay. Mm -hmm. We have about two minutes left. Could I ask one more question, Dr. Esteban? Please. All right. Uh, tour routing. Is that a group effort between you as agent, manager, and promoter? Is it between promoter and you, and then you just have the manager sign off? Is it case by case? Could you get into that for a sec? It's case by case. Mm -hmm. Every single routing is different. They all change based on needs, based on markets you need to go to, based on promoter belief in a band. There's no rhyme or reason there. It can be any different reason. Uh, you know, it, it's completely uh, random, I guess would be the best word. Mm -hmm. But you like to get your hands dirty. You like to get involved with, sure. with your uh, artists. I'm, I'm a big, yeah, I'm, I'm very much a, a someone who likes to be in the trenches figuring out routing, figuring out not only routing but what nights to play shows you know i'm very particular about when a band will play new york or la for example within a tour and i and i have very specific theories on that and you know yes i, I like to really be in the in the trenches and, and understanding um how a route is coming together why a route's coming together why why we're playing a market on this night versus that night why we've got to do a run that's 400 miles versus 200 miles. yeah all of that for sure and i think also one of the greatest attributes of a of an agent is to know the value of the artist in the marketplace, not only today, but six months from now, nine months from now, two years from now, et cetera. A hundred percent. You know, you have to be able to understand that and understand the value of what the consumer will pay to see that artist as well, mm -hmm. no matter what the, the size of the band. And I'm sure traffic plays a bigger role in the secondary and Look, tertiary markets tra uh, rather than New York City. Yeah. I, I think traffic plays a market a role in all markets, mm -hmm. including New York, uh, as does radius clauses and and other things that kind of, you know frequency of playing in a market and ability to kind of bifurcate a market. Are you playing Long Island? Are you playing New Jersey? Right. Are you playing New York City? Are you playing Orange County? Are you playing Los Angeles? Right. You know the, all those kinds of things. All, 
all relevant in, in what the way we route tours. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, um, this whole discussion has been very relevant, and we have to route an end to this tour. That was lame. That was a yes. very lame analogy metaphor, whatever. But, Ken, this has been really great, but we have to stop is what I'm trying to say because the hour is up. And we wish we could have another hour. Yeah. But our engineer says no, and so does your wife. So uh, we <clears throat> want to thank you for taking the time to be with us on Music Biz 101 and more. It was my pleasure. I was glad to do it. This is great. Great. We're going to clap for you. Clapping for Ken. Clapping for Ken. Thank you. But thank you very much. Really do appreciate it. And we hope to run run across your path one day soon. Sounds good, guys. Thank right. you very much again. Thanks. Take care. Bye. I thought it was excellent. We got one tweet in. I told Jaylene we'd maybe get to one, maybe two. but uh, And I, didn't get, I only got to a third of my questions. So um, we have one of his counterparts on in, next month, David Galea. Uh-huh. also from UTA, so we can kind of finish uh-huh. up with that. Uh, but we do need to wrap it up. There's another show behind us. So, Ashley Veltner, thank you so much for doing your German thing behind the board. Jalen Munoz, thank you for reading the single tweet. Jalen Munoz. Thank you. Dr. Stabon, yes. wonderful to have you. Well, thank you. And my co-host, of course, David Kirk Phil. I am the, the professor. professor. Yes, and we want to thank you very much for listening. No live shows for the next two weeks. Oh. Afterwards, then we'll be back live again. But we appreciate all your listening and your love. And don't forget to listen to the podcast, Music uh, Music Biz 101 and more. At the end of every show, we don't say hi. That'd be silly. At the end of every show, we say, say this with me. Adios! Yeah.